0: used to drink coffee when I was in my 20s and I remember this one day where I had like a giant one of those pressed coffee things. I got it at a cafe in the East Village and then I felt like a motor had been turned on inside of me and I I think I ran from the East Village all the way to Penn Station and when I got there I was like this feels not like a normal human way of functioning (laughs) and it's Well, it was also the East Village that was across the entire, you know, so it it was a lot. (laughs) And I, and I thought, okay, I'm, I just, I'm going to question it. (laughs) And then I'd stop drinking it, (laughs) but I love the flavor. Actually. I really like how it tastes like.
1: I just didn't drink coffee like for a long time till my mid or late twenties. And I got hooked on it because I'm a, I'm a, a journalist is my job job and I was at a conference in uh, Berlin and I hadn't really traveled to Europe much before that. And I, I certainly hadn't traveled for work and there was a, like a legit espresso machine in the press center.
0: <laughs> that was it. That was it. I mean, you know, if we had, if I don't know if I lived in Europe, I think it might be different because, you know, we're talking different, different quality. You know
1: obviously like these days you can get a very good coffee here and you totally. in New York City.
0: That is true. But there's something about every corner with an espresso bar is sort of what I'm, I you know how I think of um, being in Paris or
1: in Italy. So. I was in Barcelona for work 2 weeks ago and I like that seriously tested me. <laughs> <laughs> Cuz you know you get out you get off the plane and I I, I had uh, actually rented us an Airbnb. So, you, you, you know, you, you take a red eye, you get in, it's, I think it was, it was 830 in the morning when I landed mm-hmm. and Airbnb check-in time was 330. Oh, I lucked out. Cause I found th- it, it turned out that uh, the Moreau museum was um, like a 10 minute walk from our place. So I just stayed there for four hours. <laughs> they took my luggage i walked i saw art you know they had a little cafe it was actually that's so that's my pro tip for travelers (laughs) is find a museum nearby and just hang there for half a day
0: i didn't even know there was an entire museum devoted to murrow's work that's yeah it's in Barcelona. okay
1: he's from he's from there and he actually apparently he started it in like the 20s or 30s he he started as a foundation and now it's this huge space. They've got, it's not all Moreau, it's, but it's mostly Moreau. They've got like 10,000 works in there.
0: Oh my God. Okay. I've never been to Barcelona. Now you're, you want to go.
1: It's one of many reasons. It's a, it's a <laughs> great, it's a great city. Um, do you, I mean, I see, su- I see most of your touring happens in the States.
0: Yeah. Although I wish it were more, international at this point in my life. There was a period, I mean, I'm saying that as my daughter is graduating from high school in a couple of months. And so there's been a long time where I've been very grateful to be a kid's musician where I only have to, I really can just book a show, go stay over, you know, in the afternoon, stay overnight, get up the next morning, do it in the morning and get home by the next night. And that's been uh, a real lifesaver just for my family relationships. Uh, but now I feel like eh, I could go, I could do bigger things. It would be really fun if, if those
1: opportunities become available. If you were in sort of a more, and, and I, I and I think you were kind of in that world early on in your career, um, sort of, I guess I would say like a more traditional rock band or a more traditional indie rock band, um, you know, you're you're playing shows until like you know midnight, and one in the morning, and, and, and if you book a show close enough to where you are, you can just like pop over there and like be back, sleep in your night. bed.
0: Yep. In fact, I'm I'm playing that I do have a show in Albany. I have a show in Rawway, New Jersey. Like those shows, I I do. I just like get up that morning early. I drive there, play play. But I we do shows in Terrytown for. Uh, for the holidays, and that's you know it's forty minutes or something. So I I get up early that morning and I drive there. I do two shows and I drive home that night.
1: Well, Terrytown and Albany are very different when it comes to drive times.
0: That's true. I take so I have a place upstate. I'm going to go from there to Albany. Uh,
1: yeah, <laughs> Albany's like I've, I've only been there once. It's it's what like f- like a five six hour drive. Is- oh no no it's two and a half oh. hours from. Oh is it that cl- Okay all right my. I'm from, I'm from the West Coast, and my like I've lived here for a very long time. But my you're from
0: Barcelona.
1: I'm from, oh, yeah, I'm from the the West Coast of Spain, the Mediterranean.
0: Nobody knows how far Albany is because they don't go up there, and people in don't know how far away Manhattan is because
1: they don't go up Well, there. I mean, I find I find that to be rude. How dare they?
0: <laughs> I will say that my experience is many people that I speak to. That's true. I was massively overgeneralizing, but it is funny. I mean, also just our places maybe is less than two hours from where I live on the Upper West side. And it's, uh, and most, many of the people that are not from Manhattan originally just don't even, have never been to Manhattan that I met up there. So it's, you know, it's just, it is, a different culture, and in culturally here, like if you don't have a place to go to, like why would you go anywhere upstate, right? So,
1: I've only been to Albany once. I actually have a friend who lives um, right around there. I, I've, I've been there once. I just remember it being very cold. And this is probably just a bias on my part, but I, you know, I'm like, why wouldn't you go to New York City at least once just to see like what the big deal is?
0: Right. Well, I think a lot of people do, but then of course they're, like I said, there's, there's certainly many people I've met who haven't, but I, part of that is also just um, myths. I think about what the city is like stuff and there's a lot of wonderful things up there too. So it's sort of like, well, why would we bother? Why would we go? I do. I have to love the snow.
1: <laughs> I think if you're above a certain age and you lived through a certain time period, then you probably have some very skewed ideas of what, of how safe it is in new york city
0: right i think things have changed in both directions a lot over the years so um yeah it's easy to maybe get one idea
1: stuck in a person's head you know also i think social media is a big part of that too you know i Mm -hmm. the murder rate has just decreased dramatically over the years and i think even like the crime rate is down significantly in in new york city but obviously, all you hear about are, are the crimes that happen. And and if, and if your entire interaction with a place is through Twitter, then you get an extremely skewed idea of what goes on there.
0: Yeah, or even the news, I think. generally, and, and as well, like even just when I heard you say the murder rate, I was like, we have a murder rate. I mean, and not of course, everybody does. But like, you know, that already I could see why that would keep somebody from
1: coming. You moved out here for music to the city? Where are you from the city?
0: I I grew up mostly in New Jersey, <clears throat> uh, but when I was much, when I was very young, when I was the age of the music that I write, of the kids that I write music for, I was in Southern California. Um, and then, like in elementary school, I moved to New Jersey, and um, I went to college in New Jersey at Rutgers, <clears throat> and then I started teaching preschool music in Manhattan. I'm trying to remember. Oh, I moved to Manhattan. Actually, that's not true. I I spent a year in Manhattan, and I did move to Manhattan because my I thought I was going to maybe work in psychology. That was my major in college, Um, and art history was my minor. I didn't study music, but I played a lot of music. That was what I did for fun. And I remember saying to my parents, "I don't know what I'm going to do now that I've graduated," and they were like, "Well." you love music. Isn't that what you want to do? And I was like, who's going to pay me to be a musician? <laughs> so I'll probably have to, you know, maybe I'll work for one of my professors or, um, I don't know what. And they said, well, if you can figure out how to eat and would do whatever else you want to do, we'll help you pay rent for a year. Um, now that you've graduated college, if you want to move into the city and just see what you can do and then figure it out from your, you know, for yourself from there and I spent that year I was writing music I, and living in the city and playing in cafes and stuff. But I also had an apartment that was just one that shared a building with someone who was a preschool movement teacher. And I babysat for her
1: preschool for her, movement
0: movement. Like, like schoolers, but for like, you know, they, she would come like in dance and, or And yeah. And and like a lot of it was moving to music. Um, and I I used to like play my guitar and sing songs and tell her about like, you know, playing at Cafe Chenet across the street and stuff. And and she saw me doing that with her daughter and said, you know, you're really great with my kid. Have you ever thought about doing music with kids? I had been a, also a camp counselor, for a, a guitar teacher, um, and music counselor at a camp up in Vermont for a couple summers, and I said, "Yeah, you know that would be fun. I could be, I could come in and do music with the kids." And they had had a very well trained, um, Dalcroze Eurythmics trained music uh, music teacher for like ten years at the Rockefeller University Child and Family Center. So it was their like family center for kids, mostly of staff and teachers and uh, at Rockefeller university on the East side. And uh, so my neighbor, Deborah had that job as the movement teacher at that school. And she was like, my, well, they're looking for a new music teacher and just, they want somebody cheap.
1: <laughs> well, if that's the only qualification that I got is in the bag. Well,
0: they're, they're all, the, the other teacher left, like get And she was getting paid a lot because she was very well qualified and and trained, and all these things, and I was not. So I came in and was like, Sure, I was a camp counselor. I'll work with these kids. Um, and they took the money and they got a school psychologist, and then they paid me, you know, a sort of a, you know, it was, a, I thought it was great. I thought what I got paid was way more than like when I was picking up garbage at um, office parks in New Jersey, which was like one of my jobs before that.
1: <laughs> I moved out here to, to write for a living and just that first time that you're that you get paid that you can at least semi make a living doing something even tangentially related to what you want to do is huge
0: it's huge i mean that i remember the year before that like sitting in cafes writing in my journal trying writing music and like saying to myself am i a musician can i I, can i call myself a musician i i had never like taken voice lessons i taught myself guitar i took like uh, i was taking some lessons at that point actually uh, but i mostly learned through like a night school class and and p- looking at books so um <clears throat> i just i and finally writing like i am a musician i am a musician over and over in a book so that i would believe it you know and then then i got the job as the music teacher at this preschool and i was really terrible like like really bad. The teachers, I think, were like, I can't believe they hired this person.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's interesting, right? Because I mean, I, I do think that that in a lot of ways, being a count, camp counselor does translate, but it sounds like maybe the music side was the difficulty.
0: No, it was, it was age group. So I was a camp counselor. You don't go to sleepaway camp until you're eight. So I worked with eight to 15-year-olds, which was fun and I, you know, I was, I was in some rock bands at the time. And and when I played in like a cover band, I didn't get home till six in the morning because we were, we would play far away and we played four hour sets. And so I, and I knew all those songs, like I knew all the campfire songs and I could teach kids blowing in the wind and all that kind of stuff to learn guitar. But when I got into a preschool, I literally was like, these human beings speak a completely different language than I. I do not remember what it's like to be this age. I do not understand why they're hitting each other. I don't know how to talk to them so that they want to do things. The minute I look at one of them, the other one behind me runs to the other side of the room. Like there, I just was like completely out of my element. And, um, it took, a, it took that whole first year and a lot of listening to those kids and paying attention and like asking questions to figure out, how to how to have a an experience with them that felt good for all of us at least it seemed like it did by the end of the year
1: (laughs) so what's the answer to the question of why they they hit each other did you ever (laughs) figure that one out
0: (laughs) yeah they're mad
1: oh okay well that's fair
0: (laughs) angry about something you express it with your body and then we teach them to not do that right so um it's not always. A, I think it's a great thing to hit. It's just like it hurts if you hit another kid, so you learn to hit something else. That you, can, you know, hit a pillow. <laughs>
1: I'm looking forward to your next album. It's a great thing to hit.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I do think that it's helpful to express sure. feelings. It's this, a relief. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll take it a step further. I don't think it's just a release. I actually think that we. That it's necessary, like it's really necessary, to both to either, especially when we're younger, to learn how to express what it is that we're feeling to help identify it, but also to um, to not hold those feelings like in our tissues. And then, I and then I think the growing, the learning from that is to move through that to allow the the the, the change of like. Anger is often built on top of hurt, I think. And, um, so hurt so it's,
1: people hurt people is what they say.
0: That's what they say. Yeah. And I do, I do think that feeling hurt would make me really angry. So I could see how those, you know, I, I think those things are related. And I do think that we learn to build a container for our feelings as we get more emotionally mature, but that there's like, there's a level of, you know, developmental appropriateness that happens as th- that, you know, you have to pay attention to. And um so, you know, I could see, okay, you're mad about something you want to, like your body is going, Hey, you know? so like, what do you do with that energy? Right. If you completely stop it, I think that actually that can be, this is, to, you know, I, this is just how I feel, but I think that that.
1: You were a psychology major. So <laughs> psychology you got some background. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's actually more the 20 years of therapy that I was in more than what I learned. I think in college, but I do. But it didn't hurt. <laughs> Both of those things were important.
1: <laughs> At the end of the day, they're basically little balls of it, aren't they?
0: May, well, so that's really interesting too. I think that that's a big part of what's happening. But I also like it is incredible how much intelligence i think and and emotional intelligence and um and creativity and curiosity and um just like so i think it just from the moment we're born right so and i think it's easy to not pay attention to those things if we're not looking so i really um yeah i don't know i feel like i learn so much just by seeing kids so so to me that feels a little reductive to say that there is have emotions, and they're you know they they're, they're definitely happening for
1: kids. I was being a little jokey about that, but
0: no, but I feel protective. No, I know,
1: and, and and I think that you're right, and this is something that I've thought about a lot. I, I I don't have children myself, but just through the process of growing up, and and it really continues to this day that we we get so much beaten out of us over the years. You know whether it's ambitions, whether you know, and and I know this is definitely a cultural thing. It's traditionally been, I, I think, well, on both sides, really. But you know, like you know, like men aren't allowed to like express feelings, right? Like, yeah, I think I I think that's right. In that maybe they're in touch with something we've lost a long time ago, and the the question is, how do you teach them how to operate in society? And not you know, physically or emotionally hurt people, but still maintain whatever it was that they had in the first place.
0: Right. So I think right. I think I think it's actually if maybe we just slightly tweak that of like teaching them how it is important to teach, but I also think a lot of what's happening is that we forget to learn from them, right? From that that there's already There's already sort of an intrinsic, beautiful way of being in the world that a lot of what we do as people who are like, quote, good members of society can, can squeeze out of them. And I think it's really important to, to support and encourage and maintain some of the natural, like self-love and self-empowerment and, and sense of, um, and a sense of connectedness and and instinct for love. When I heard you say, "Teach them how to still be themselves," they're, they're, I think that's right. I think it's more, it is about it, encouraging and supporting kids to be who they already are. All those parts of them that were that were, I feel like we can be born with, which is self love, self empowerment, the ability to connect to other people, the desire. Um, in whatever way we do that, of course, you know, especially I think that the more we discover about neurodiversity, there are a lot of ways to connect to people. But um, and that's but that's it is like wanting that interest, the curiosity, like be, in, being interested in understanding what another person's experiences, all of those things and being honest about what our own experiences are and what we need. Like those are things that I get definitely there's a teaching element involved, like teaching someone to ask for the things they need. But sometimes I think it is, it's almost like it's, we so quickly teach them not to do that stuff that it's almost an unlearning. And then we get to learn from them. If we like look early enough before those things get like you, you said beaten out of them. I hope that's not actually what's happening.
1: (laughs) It's like anything else, you know, we, we, you know, everything wears over time and you know, you do, you know, I I feel really far away from where I was yeah. at the time, and and I and I feel like even until like fairly recently in my life, I've held on to a lot of those those ambitions or those feelings, and it's just you know wh- whether it's whether it's intentional or not, the world weighs on you.
0: Yeah, no, I I. I here and something that you're saying, like part of what I think I felt when I first started working with um, preschool age kids and, and younger, which was that it felt being a child did, in my mind, feel like it was so far away. And what has happened for me is like over time. I mean, I don't mean to use a cliche, but really actually noticing and paying attention more to the child part of myself has been also a really great learning process for me and just in terms of my own self-discovery and i think that and listening to that part of myself um and i think it i mean to me it makes me feel like i i am a better person for that um and i could see also how easy it would be to feel separated from i think we are we do get taught to separate from that I hate to say inner child sometimes because it can be really connected to things that, that people don't like, but I love it. You know, I love cause that is really what it feels like to me. And, um, I, my inner child is four, by the way, that is, I've like decided that's, that's the age that I really connect to. And, um, do you, do you, what do you think? Do you have an inner child that you feel can like aware of?
1: I don't think I could even like begin to quantify it in terms of age. And part of that, again, is I, I don't have children. I don't spend a lot of time around children. And I'm not even entirely... If, if you ask me what the difference between a three-year-old, a four-year-old, and a five-year-old was, aside from, I guess, height, I, I, I don't think I would be able to g- give you anything tangible.
0: So you said something about ambitions that you are... like. Do, are there things that you feel like you wish you had done already at this age or something, or that you imagined you were going to do? What was that?
1: You know, I think we all have like specific ambitions, you know, and, and obviously they change over time, but, and, and certainly we have expectations in terms of, you know, where we think we would be certain milestones in, in our life. But I, I'm, I'm more talking just sort of, and, and I think this kind of, this relates to, to, to what you're saying, but also what you do is the, is the creative side of things is the ability to let me back it up. So we were talking about how important it is that first time that you make money doing the thing that you want to do. I'm always a little bit cautious to say that because I do think that, um, it takes away from that pure, that pure ambition, that pure, the desire to make, something to create something for the sake of creating it because at a certain point it's not tenable for most people in the real world to do that you know you you know and 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 it sounds like your career didn't go exactly like you expected it to go but I don't want to use the word lucky but, but you are you're one of the lucky few you know a, a, a small percentage of musicians who's able to actually make a living, you know, writing and performing music.
0: Oh, I do feel lucky in that way. I feel like I have a lot of reasons. There are reasons why I think I am where I am, but I think that some of it also had to do with luck and timing and, and a lot of hard work, but uh, you know, but you're right. That is, and that's true. That's exactly how I felt when I got out of college. I was like, how am I ever going to make money doing music?
1: It's very funny to hear you retell that story. And I, 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 I'm sure you're, at least subconsciously aware of how atypical, I interview a lot of musicians, your conversation with your parents was that they were the ones telling you to go try to make a living making music. And you were the like staunchly (laughs) pragmatic one.
0: (laughs) Well, I won't say that that wasn't the entire story because there was, as I did actually start to write kids music, I, I do remember my mom being a little like, are you sure this is the right thing? Like, I'm not sure you're going to really be able to do anything with this. So there, you know, there was back and forth. Um,
1: but that's when you made the move from writing for grown-ups to kids, which is interesting.
0: Right. That's true. It was, some, it's, I kind of remember. And but the thing was that was in the context of her saying, if you need, do, do you, would you like us to help you out? Like by loaning you some money for something, like if you need to make your albums or whatever, not that I think, you know this might be the wrong direction but we could help you if it's really what you want to do so there even though it was still surrounded by a lot of support which was great and um you know and i was like you know privileged enough that my parents could help me out with those things that was very lucky and and i had gone you know i, I basically i mostly paid my own way through college so they were very happy to help so um so i think Yeah, you're right. That was different and that, and it was great. And I, I loved, I appreciated that they were like, go try. Why don't you go try the thing that makes you happy? And, and like you said, it was a surprise. Like I didn't know that the thing would make, that would make me happy was writing music for kids. But I think, and I've really come to be aware of how I was really writing a lot of those songs for myself and for what I, you know, who I was when I was a kid and, and imagining like, oh, I kind of wish I had a song like this. I wish I had something, a song that made me feel this way, um, musically or content wise or rhythmically or whatever.
1: I think that that is sort of distilled the purest element of the creative process is making a thing that you don't see in the world that you want Mm -hmm. to exist.
0: Right, right, right. I think that's, I think that was a lot. That was absolutely everything because part of it was also completely practical that I was teaching music to preschoolers and could not find music that did what I needed it to do in that room. And when I went, I actually went and observed my predecessor and I just saw her, like she had a. P- she sat at the piano. I had a guitar and could run around after the kids. She sat in one place. She played that piano and she had three-year-olds doing everything she asked them to do: sitting, getting up, galloping around, singing, clapping their hands. Afterwards, I was like, "You are a magician! How did you do that?" And she said, "Stop talking to them. Just put it all in the music, and you'll be fine." And that was when I was like, "Oh, I need to find songs that help the kids do the things that I'm trying to get them to do with their bodies, with each other, with, you know." And and I had a really hard time finding that. Music And then I thought, oh my God, I write songs. I could just write one. (laughs) So, you know, that, that was a, a real light bulb moment.
1: You said it took time and understandably time to figure out that writing music for kids made you happy. Did, did writing music for grownups make you happy?
0: It was yes and no. I mean, I don't know if I didn't always feel happy. It made me feel, made me feel a lot of things, not always happy. But a lot of times I was working out things that I was struggling with by writing music. So that, you know, and, and I still do that even with the kids songs, but there it's, it's you know it's just in a slightly different way. I don't know that I, I was just going to say my, the, the songs that I wrote early on that were for like my rock band or when I would be playing singer songwriter nights, you know, solo with guitar. I, think a lot of those were a combination of also of working things out and kind of trying to convince myself that I was a creative person or like that I was making something important I think I had a lot I had many more a much a bit much bigger agenda with that music so um so it felt I loved playing a lot of that those those songs because it brought up a lot of feelings in me and just the emotional experience of singing and allowing that those sounds to come out of my voice and playing the guitar and feeling all of that at once felt really good. Um, but also I think I I wanted those pieces to be something that like when I write, it is more pure when I write music for kids because I feel like I'm I'm just trying to connect to them. And that's really the, that's the deepest...
1: Part. I, I mean, I would suspect that writing music for older people, um, there, there can be a little bit more one-to-one that that catharsis that you describe because topics and words and you know certain things perhaps aren't off limits the same way that they would be if you were singing exactly. to a bunch of preschoolers. Exactly. Um, but what what's can you point to an example in the music that you make now that really did give you that? I guess that, that relief, that, that ability to work through things?
0: Sure. Um, I have this one song that I wrote is called I'm not perfect. And, um, when I, I actually, this was so pre digital age when I was doing a lot of birthday parties on the weekends having and juggling many classes that I was teaching music in. Um, I had a date book and it had all of the information for these kids parties and the phone numbers of the parents and stuff. And I lost it on a bus. And it was the only place that I had all that stuff written down. And I knew I had parties that weekend. I was like, I don't know where to go. I don't know where they are and I don't know how to reach them. And like I was, tr- you know, no, no phone log on my cell phone. I didn't have a cell phone. <laughs> so I was freaking out like a freaking out and crying and like I didn't know what to do and I remember I was driving somewhere and I was like bawling and hitting the steering wheel and like how could I have lost it what is wrong with me how could I let these people down Um, and then I started I was already in therapy at that point and I was like I can only do what I can do I need I will I'll call the bus company I will I'll try to figure out, you know, what, however I can reach these people and which ultimately I did, but I was driving in the car and I just started like singing to myself, like through my tears, I'm not perfect. No, I'm not, you know, and that became it's, it's like four lines. I'm not perfect. No, I'm not. I'm not perfect, but I've got what I got. I do my very best. I do my very best. I do my very best each day. I'm not perfect. And I hope you like me that way. And that was pretty much the whole song. Um, so that helped
1: a lot. (laughs) You you mentioned therapy, but how does therapy fit into this?
0: Um, I just, there were some, like, that was that kind of understanding that it was okay to make mistakes and that I could learn from
1: things that are very obvious on the face of it, but that you have to kind of arrive at yourself.
0: Yes. And I think being, you know, I was at, at, when I wrote that, I was probably, not sure if, you know, I might've been 29 or something like I, you know, I was, I was at a place in my life where I thought I needed to do things a certain way in order to be acceptable. And, um, and in some ways I still struggle with that. You know, it's just, it's so, it's insidious and it sort of underlies a lot of social interactions and, um, how I talk to myself and how I feel about myself. And I think I've learned a lot actually both working with kids and then ultimately also becoming a parent myself and hearing my own voice come out of my mouth towards a child. You know, it's like those, it's very telling to hear how, what I, how I learned to talk to my own self and that, and that child, I think a lot of times I do have to think about, Where's the adult part of me? What is the child part of me? What does each of them need? How how can they talk to each other in a way that's actually going to be loving and encouraging and help with growth rather than cutting myself down and and hurting myself?
1: We call them core beliefs in CBT. Interesting. And in cognitive behavioral therapy, which is like. And it, I, you know, and this is you know, something that I've only sort of been looking into lately, and, and, it's, and it's very interesting because it makes a lot of sense that there are a lot of things that we carry with us through life, and that because we take them for granted, we, we never really examine them.
0: Yes, and I think what's really interesting is that people might examine them if they even realized that they were a belief, I think what often happens is that it's 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 almost as if it doesn't exist because it's um those ideas don't even form into verbal phrases for a lot of people for a lot of, certainly for me that happened for a long time because I didn't know that I, I was thinking it because it was so p- much a part of my existence right so it's kind of unpacking those things breaking that stuff down um taking a look bothering to question all of those things are super important.
1: Yeah. It, it's almost like you don't know that there are, it's almost like you don't know that there are other ways to think like that there are other options for you because you take it for granted.
0: Yes. That's what I was trying to say. No, it's great. It's really helpful because I think about that a lot and it's, it's very hard to even put that into words sometimes. That's why I write, I try to put things into words and make them really small and, and neat.
1: <laughs> Listen, I, I write for a living. I, uh took a lot of creative writing courses. I, you know, am a big music person. The the art thing is like a rel- like the fine art thing is a relatively recent thing for me, but the very obvious on the face of it, but something that I think you have to really learn and feel viscerally is the role of metaphor in writing and symbolism in art, this attempt to express something that that maybe can't be expressed in words.
0: That yeah, that's a great point. I think, and that's part of what I love about music is the combination of the it's the combination of the melodic and the rhythmic and the um, and when you take words and you put them together with other words in a certain way, along with the music, like all of that has meaning that is so exponentially larger or can be. It isn't always. It's
1: alchemy. It can be. Yeah,
0: it really can be. And you can also take sounds away and make something really, really effective and powerful, right? So, and sometimes it's just the contrast within a piece, and all of those things are like, I think about that a lot in my own recording, actually. That when I started, it was just myself and the guitar. And I was working with an engineer who was like a friend of a friend who had a basement studio in. Hoboken, New Jersey, and I would go out there, and uh, I think I think we've recorded my first album in a weekend. This is my this is the story I tell because this is what I remember um, back in 1997 on reel to reel tape. But anyway, the whole thing about that was that I I was it was me and the guitar, but we slowly we added a few things. I brought in my friend Susie, who's the keyboardist I still play with, and she played some piano. I brought in someone to play Adam to play bass who was my bass player for a period of time. but only on a couple of songs like they played on a few songs, I sang a little bit. That's of- not
1: your husband. Is that your husband or is that a different no. bass player?
0: Okay. A different- like Brian right So Brian was first then Adam. but Brian did come in and play some electric actually on that first album. but everything was very spare. And part the reason I did it originally was because the vocals felt so important. the words, making that connection with kids, they're listening for words, they're learning language still so much. you know they're very tuned into that. That felt really important to me. But I also realized when I listened to it that the fewer instruments I used, every time I added one little thing to a song, it was like a whole gigantic world of sound and feeling and change that would open up just by adding or taking even taking away one thing. So it it, it gave me, a lot of power without having to, you know, have a ton of musicians or even have a huge amount of musical knowledge, you know, it, within that the context of that one album, which I, I really I felt very excited about that when we were making it, and um and I think of recording sort of like sculpture in that way, you know, like sculpting each piece. And anyway, I just hear what you're saying that it can it can really be a, a, a great way to share ideas without just words
1: i don't know this world at all and i know obviously like a lot of you know a lot of the bigger names have been you know i guess in in the folk tradition you know a lot of like people with guitar like is part of it but but oftentimes when i think about music for children i think about these things that are like that are big and brash and that have a lot of instrumentation and that almost almost kind of overwhelm the senses
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. No, totally. I mean, and I do think there are sort of different schools of thought about what is okay and, um, and what, what kids like, you know, that, and some of it is to try to, is sort of a marketing more like everything is colorful um, and over the top. And some is everything is really spare. I've, I feel like I've, I hope that I'm kind of a little bit riding the in-between line of that. Since my first album Later on, I when I actually sort of established more of a band and added a drummer, um, you know, the, the the more recent albums have more full band pieces on them. But I do still try to kind of live by that sense of just remembering how important it is to to keep things to keep things available for kids, like to really hear the vocals to not have so much audio information that it is overwhelming, um, and, but also keeping it fun. And and sometimes I go fully in the other direction. Like I have a song right now called Chipmunk at the Gas Pump, and we made a dance remix of it. And I have a whole album of it with dance remixes with like, you know, things exploding and stuff like that. And some kids really, really love that. And other kids really, really want to just listen to the, acapella stuff and some kids live all of it you know it's like really just remembering of course everybody's different but it but i i did i did like that bo- both as an artist when i was younger and and i hope that it sort of helped you know connect more with kids at least on at that developmental level
1: yeah i mean you mentioned neurodiversity earlier and that plays a really big role in, in sensory perception and i I, su- I suspect that's a big part of the reason why you know, to a certain extent, I think people, as they get older, they 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 can they can adapt and they can adjust. But when you're when you're that young and you are neurodivergent, it's probably really hard to just get bombarded by sound.
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah. And you know what's funny is I think. Hold on one second. I swallowed my water the wrong way. <coughs> I do. I do some sensory friendly shows when I'm able to do that, um, for exactly that reason, because I do get a lot of feedback from parents, uh, about kids who just lights sound. is too much. I know, um, for a lot of autistic kids, that is a really big, that's very difficult to even like, they want to be part of to have an experience, but sometimes it's not just the show. It's, it's all the people around. Right. So, um, so sometimes that experience is not, a, it's just like not a fun thing for an autistic kid. Sometimes it is. Cause obviously they always, as they say, every autistic person is like one autistic person. <laughs> That's it. Like every, every, it's so such a, such a true spectrum, but um, I do like having that opportunity for, I mean, there, and there are lots of sensory processing, um, different kinds of, you know, difficulties that kids can have. So, so I like having those shows available, but, you know, and then there are also, there are a lot of kids actually who have those kinds of um, experiences who come to the regular show. It's not, you know, it, I think it all depends, but it can be, yes. I think it can be very overwhelming sometimes. So it's nice to have that opportunity to create something that also just, hopefully connects through the words and through the simplicity
1: of the arrangement. These are all things that you really have to pick up over time. I mean, and, and partially because obviously the the science has evolved a lot and, and you know, when, when we were younger, it just wasn't diagnosed um, unless you were, you know, at a certain point on the spectrum, but, but you really do have to learn as you go. I, I, I would imagine in this period that you're describing when you were recording your first record, I mean, there's no, I I would assume at least there's, there's no rule book, right? I mean, you really do have to figure out how you can operate in that world. And you're, and, and, and that's like a big first step from just playing to children in a room to deciding I'm going to record this thing and just sort of, you know, let it go where it goes.
0: Right. So that is absolutely true. I, I mean, I think that may have changed somewhat over the years, but at the time I remember thinking I, I recorded my first album really just to sell to the parents of the kids that I was working with. And because I was singing songs with them that I had written or, I mean, I sometimes feel like I wrote it with them. Like I would say, what do you want to sing about? And they would tell me, and then I would sort of try to make stuff up and just adjust it as I watched them responding. And, those songs the parents said well my kid's coming home singing a song about dinosaurs and I don't know it so I thought okay I'm gonna record these and actually I, I one of one of my jobs um, my boss there said I really want you to record this, these songs because we're getting the same questions that you are let me loan you some money and like come up with a proposal so that was actually how I did it was that I said look I I'm going to find a place to record. I will make 500 cassettes and I'll sell them for $5 a piece, which means I have the potential to make $2,500, you know, not talk like I said. And for, no, I think I can do it. Like I can pay the engineer and I, and then I can, and I can make them and I'll do all the art myself. I think I can do that for $2,000. Can I, um, if you give me 2500 that means I would keep 500 at the end is what do you think? And she said great, let's do it. So I did it and I I don't know if I said the math right, but anyway, she she basically fronted me the money and I was able to make them and I sold them all in like 3 months. So I was like, "Oh, I think I just made money on that. That's awesome. Okay. Um, I think she gave me 2000. And I said, I'm going to sell them and make 2500. So I'll keep the five. That was how it worked out. So then I took that $500. And I started thinking about making another album. Um, And then so that like, but then I thought, I don't know what I'm doing. So I called a friend of mine, who was a freelance writer who was just really, I don't know, she just is very smart. She's We're we're still friends now, and she—I knew her, I had known her since fourth grade—and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm terrible at promoting myself. I'm not sure how to get this music out there, and I'm not sure what I should be doing. But I seem to be selling these cassettes. So, like, will you meet with me and like talk to me about it? So I gave her fifty bucks a week to come and like sit down with me and give me a to do list. And eventually, she said, "You need to start a record label." So that was two tomatoes, and um, I was just a DBA at the time. And she's like, "You need to start keeping track of all this stuff. Like, you're gonna have to pay taxes, <laughs> you know, stuff like that." And and eventually, um, yeah, I re- I did really feel like there was no rule book, and I I thought I I don't know how to do this. I don't know if anybody makes money doing kids music. Most of the feedback I got was, "You can't," because kids musicians are very localized. Unless you have a giant company behind you like Disney, and um, you know nobody will hear your music unless you play at a library or, um, for me, it was at these birthday parties. I was getting hired to play at kids' birthday parties because I was their music teacher. I would, and they, the, the moms and dads would say, "Bring a cassette, bring ten cassettes with you. We'll give them out in the, um, in the goodie bags." And then those, or 20 cassettes, and I would sell them. So that would be nice on top of them, you know, a little bit they would give me for performing back in that day. And then those kids would all go home with a cassette. And then I didn't know half of them because they didn't all go to the same school where I was teaching. And then one of those parents would call me and say, oh, my kid loves your cassette. Would you come and do a birthday party for my kid? Bring 25 of your your cassettes and I'll hmm. give them out as in the goodie bags. And so, like, little things like that – I was like, this is, is this how you do it? <laughs> this is definitely working so far. I was, you know, I was definitely at least getting the the birthday party gigs early
1: on. It's a true DIY story. And, you know, obviously like you hear, you know, Daniel Johnston selling cassettes out of his, out of his trunk. And, right. you know, I obviously very, very few and far between, I think of think like, people actually really being able to, to build up the momentum in the way that you were able to do.
0: Well, I, I do think that a lot of it was, like we just said at the beginning, some of it was luck. Some of it was um, being in New York City helped a lot. There were a lot of people here doing, who had a lot of power and were doing interesting things. And like that, one of the things that really helped me was getting on the Today Show early on. And the only reason that a kids musician got on the Today Show was because... I had also done a couple of um, high profile birthday parties, like uh, Madonna's daughter and Sting's son was at that birthday party, at Lola's party. And so
1: that's literally as high profile as you could get yeah, in music.
0: Right. But they were not, you know, We uh, it was one of those things where like I had done them and then. And honestly, I almost didn't. I almost turned down the, the one from Madonna's Kids because I didn't know who it was for. And I was like trying to make sure that I wasn't uh, doing a workaholic. Oh, that's
1: interesting. So when you get the offer, you don't know who you're going to play for.
0: Exactly. So I, I got a call from, I think it was the, their, either an assistant or maybe it was the nanny, um, and said, look, my I have this child turning three. She... Takes classes at the West Side Y and has heard your one of your cassettes, which is one of the places that I did um, caregiver like mommy and me or caregiver and me classes. And um, the art teacher used to play my cassette in her class, and um, so I didn't even I didn't have um, Lola in my classes at all, but she heard the music there. So anyway, well, the whole point was just that they. They called and said, you know, she likes your songs, hears it in the art classes, and would you do this do this party? And I said, I'm, I just promised my husband that I would not work all weekend. I already have two parties that weekend. I'm really sorry. And she said, so does it make any difference who it's for? <laughs> and I said, well, what do you mean? And she was like, well, it's for Madonna's daughter. And I said, I, I think I can make some time. <laughs>
1: Was that just sort of like curiosity, or just to just just to experience it? What 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 really pushed you over the edge?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I, I felt very. Um, I I really. I'm trying. To, I don't remember exactly how I felt at the time, except like it. It felt so flattering and exciting.
1: She knows something about music.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think you know that just felt like a very special opportunity. And plus, and I guess at that point I had how many, I think I had three albums out already. So I was trying to do things with my kids music. So I was like, this would be a wonderful thing to have done. And certainly a really um, interesting person to meet, which I barely spoke to her. Um, I don't even know if we did. I think like she waved at me when she came in. So we had very little interaction, but And at the time, and I remember afterwards like thinking maybe I could get a, a quote from her or something. Yeah. Um, which I think eventually she did send, she's my daughter's favorite musician or my daughter's favorite kids' musician, something like that. And Pretty good. it was great. You know, at the time I was like, no, I want Madonna to say I'm great, which <laughs> that was, would have been asking quite a lot. Um, but, you know, I was young and hungry. And um, so that, you know, having done that, so having done that, Um, And then Sting's son was at the party. So then I ended up doing his after. So those things helped a lot when there was a line producer at the Today Show who was at some other birthday party that I had been at and that had gone home with um, my second album, Buzz Buzz, which actually this is the 25th anniversary of it this year, Um, went home with that CD And their kid got very into it. And she pitched me to be on the Today Show, like to play in the plaza and just do a kid's show as like a different kind of a thing. And then um, when she finally she got turned down at first and then she did she pitched me again when a different um, CEO came on. And that person said, oh, I've been to birthday parties with Lori Berkner (laughs) And he was like, she was like, the the person that you get at your parties, you know, in the Opera West in Manhattan. So he was like, okay, what would, you know, what kind of a story would we do? So then I, when I said, you know, I had done these birthday parties, suddenly it was like, oh, we have kind of an interesting angle as a bio. I, I had gotten myself a publicist at that point. Um, and actually that was how I, I think that's how I got the publicist. I said, she was like... Your music is really good. I don't I don't know, know exactly what I'd write about what has happened. I was like, well, I did these parties. She was like, okay, I'm in. And then she got People Magazine to write something about me pretty quickly after that. So that was like, I think that was the first, like beyond, you know, local Upper West Side News, that was the first um, national like I don't, is People Magazine International? Anyway, it was the first not local publication (laughs) that wrote about me. So, you know, that I'd been in People, then the Today Show was sort of interesting. So it was, you know, those things build, they build on themselves. I think Publishers Weekly, there was a a wonderful um, reviewer there who also just like listened to my cassette and was willing to review it. Somebody in like a Disney publication called Family Circle at the time. And those were all, those all happened because my friend Sarah, was really good at taking my stuff and wrote a little, like she basically was my PR person. She wrote it, she sent it to places, she sent my albums out and some people wrote about them.
1: You can't dwell on this too much because it'll drive you nuts, but it is that sort of sliding doors thing of, if I had turned down that party, then my life would be probably pretty dramatically different.
0: Interesting. Yeah, there are a lot of things like that. And certainly there are things in my life that I have turned down that I think, oh, maybe I would, Maybe my life would be, like, better in some ways um, and certainly worse in some others for other things that happened over the years. But, um, yeah, that was a very and, – and luck, too, right? I was – I happened to work in Manhattan. I was the music person at um, – you know, who – and my cassette was in that classroom when her kid was going there. And it was just, like, you never know.
1: You mentioned it being the twenty. 20- fifth year of that album and you know I I had I had a weird experience a couple years ago where uh, somebody started at the outlet that I write for and said that he had read my stuff growing up and it was like I had a very like visceral (laughs) and a very visceral reaction like you know it's that thing of like I you know I should be like happy and honored but also like how old am I you're at that point in your career where the you know the first group of kids that you were playing to are very much adults now it what is that? Do do they sort of, do they come around? Do they talk to you? Do they reach out and, and tell you how important your music was?
0: They do. And I feel like I feel so lucky to be alive in an age where we have things like TikTok because <laughs> you know, they're, that's where they're finding me. Or, um, you know, sometimes at concerts, the last, the last show I did, I was playing in Massachusetts, um, a week or so ago, and um, someone came. she actually didn't ask her how old she was. She's probably in her 20s. But um, she came without kids, watched the whole show, bought a meet-and-greet ticket, and came up afterwards and said, you were the first concert I ever went to. And and she worked at the Lego store now, and she made little Legos of everybody in the band. It was like so adorable. But she just said, your music still means so much to me now, you know, and that was, and, and that's actually someone who's younger than, you know, I have a lot of people when I first started. So my first, my very first album was 26 years ago. Cause I, my first three albums all came out in.
1: um, Successive of years so they're like early 30s in some cases
0: yeah, that's what i was going to say is that and also when i made that album in the first one in 1997 i had already been teaching music for five years so i was working with kids and some of them were five or six years old right so nice so think if you're five in 1992 and um somewhere in those first few years maybe even let's just say even 1995 um and I had written, we are the dinosaurs was one of the very first songs I wrote. And so that would have been somewhere in those early nineties. So say you're five in 1995. How old does that make that person? I
1: don't want to know. Lori. <laughs> I'm not going to do the math on that. I feel bad but enough.
0: They have their own kids. They have, that's wild. And they're bringing their kids to my shows. And I think it's beautiful. I mean, it does, it does sometimes make me feel old, but I guess, you know, I am old and, for i'm older than some people and younger than others so i feel like that it's it's really i don't know it's really kind of amazing and it is it was a it was a fantasy of mine that that would happen because when i was a kid i listened to um free to be you and me i was a little older than the age group that i tend to like i was you know but but still i remember thinking I want to play this music for, if I ever have kids, that I had that feeling about that recording. um, And just, it is such an honor. Like I just, I'm overwhelmed by that honor, actually, that somebody would say, I grew up listening to your music and I remembered it and I care enough to want to share it with my own children. It's like, there's really nothing better than that. I was sitting in my garden when I saw a bumblebee, he said his name was Oscar, and he went buzz, 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 buzz.